Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. First Peter 4, 1-11 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Megan. For nine days during the summer of A.D. 60, a huge fire raged in the city of Rome. The flames spread rapidly through the city's narrow streets and the many wooden homes with people still in them. Many believed Nero was responsible for starting the blaze because of his desire to refurbish Rome by whatever means possible. As the fire destroyed most of the city's districts, it's reported that he watched gleefully from the Tower of Messinus. Roman troops even prevented people from extinguishing the fire while starting new fires in the city. The disaster thoroughly demoralized the Romans because many lost nearly all their earthly goods and found their civic pride scorched as well. With public resentment toward Nero at a high level, he diverted attention away from himself and made the Christian community the scapegoat for the fire. There had been a rising tide of anti-Christian attitudes in Rome. And we actually don't know whether Nero actually set fire to Rome or not. There's some conflicting reports, but what we do know is that following the burning of Rome, Nero capitalized on the anti-Christian sentiment and punished the Christians by using heinous and unjust tortures. He used Christians uh, and in some of his parties as human torches to entertain his guests. He would put Christians in animals and serve them to other animals. He would crucify Christians. And the apostle Peter, 
likely wrote this letter just before Nero's persecution began. The original readers of Peter's letter didn't know exactly what would be coming. We don't know exactly what will come. We don't know if we might be the scapegoat of something in the future. And honestly, in my lifetime, in most of my Christian life, that, kind, that thought would have been unthinkable, actually. Like, actually, that there would be a governing official that would blame a group of people for doing something and could actually get away with it. But there's a reality in our culture today that, that, that it's, it's possible. Maybe not this exact day, but the air is there. I mean, when an article in the New York Times that was published on July 18th, uh, actually not New York Times, in USA Today, they ran an article which was titled, Houses of Worship Can Be Dangerous Environment. That was the title. And then it goes on and has some statistics of, you know, when houses of worship, maybe people got, got sick with the virus. But here's the reality. If you really look at the statistics, like they really pale in comparison to other things. But yet, yet what is being communicated, unfortunately, in an article like that is they're the ones at fault. We, we should be cautious of them because they're the ones that are at fault. Now, I'm not trying to get into, you know, what we need to do, masks, not wear masks, you know, that whole discussion. The reality is, friends, it's possible that at some time under the, the right leadership or the right political circumstances that we could become the scapegoat, being completely innocent, just like the first century Christians. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared for that time. We need to live a certain way to bring glory to God. We don't know what's coming. And frankly, as we, we seek to live our lives to bring glory to God in the face of persecution, we don't want to live thinking about what could come in terms of persecution. We want to look further beyond that to the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and we want to live our lives before him. Because even in this passage, in, in verse 7, it says, the end of all things is at hand. And there's that reality. The end of all things is at hand. Well, is this the actual last days? I don't know. It's actual last days. They certainly believed it in the New Testament, and we should believe it ever more now because we're that much closer to that time. So Jesus is coming back, and he promised that we would face persecution. But Peter exhorts us and has exhorted us not to be afraid. But we want to make the best use of our time. So let's make the best use of our time. And so as we look at this passage, knowing that Christ has suffered for us, because it starts with, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, knowing that he suffered for us as we prepare, we want to look at three truths in this passage to embrace and the first one is we want to embrace the call to battle sin and pursue the will of God. Look at verses one and two. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So arm yourselves. So we need to arm ourselves. We need to be ready. 
What, what kind of thinking are we talking about? Remember where we've been in the book. There, we just came last week. We were looking at suffering for righteousness sake. We looked at Christ suffered for our sins. We want to keep that in view as we look to live our lives today. So we arm ourselves with that way of thinking. Remember 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So we want to die to sin. We want to be intentional to oppose sin in our life, but not just that. We want to pursue the will of God. We don't want to just focus on the one and not the other. Uh, oftentimes in the Christian life and in some Christian circles, there can be a pursuit of, of sin in, in a way. Pursuit, not to pursue to, to sin, but to try to root out sin. There's just this constant focus on sin, but there absolutely should be a balance that there because we do need to arm ourselves so that we don't give in to the temptations of sin, but yet we need to pursue the will of God. And the temptations are there for us, friends, to slip back into old patterns of thinking. The passage goes on. It says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So we, we don't want to live anymore for those human passions. But I think for us in this season of time, we just have to be aware that human passions are coming at us in a way that is unprecedented in human history. Even unprecedented in the most recent years. I mean, with all of the having to go home or varieties of activities being canceled, there uh, we, we are left with ourselves and our devices. There's an awareness that uh, Brett McCracken writes this. He wrote, a church's worship habits may occupy two hours of a Christian's week, but podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards of 90 hours of their week. Yes, you read that ratio correctly. And in the pandemic, it's only growing more extreme. To be sure, the formative power of echo chambers and the threat of wolves is not new. What is new in the internet age, though, is that any given sheep is now vulnerable to literally millions of wolves whose overt or subtle dangers are only ever a few clicks away. And it's impossible for any pastor to be aware of all the wolves. Friends, we must not allow ourselves to be intoxicated by all that the world is throwing at us. We just need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of what's going on. We need to arm ourselves. Sometimes that's practically by putting things on our devices to have us be accountable. Sometimes that's uh, being in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ that can walk with us to help us in our battle against sin or yet in encourage us in our pursuit of righteousness. Now, I want to ask you, do you have friends like that? I know you, you, you're probably part of a small group in our faith family, but are you getting to the nitty-gritty 
Are you saying, I've put off sin and I'm pursuing righteousness? There's, there's times we do need to kind of put off the sin where we need to, to, to work at it. I can think about... Um, you know, the illustration of when we've, we've purchased homes over the years, we've moved to different states and lived in different places. And so we move someplace, we, we, we buy a home. And when we get to the home, oftentimes there's, there's gardens. Sometimes it's just like a flower garden in the front yard, or sometimes there's bigger gardens. When we get to the garden, inevitably, when we've purchased some places, like they are overgrown right? They have weeds in the garden and some weeding needs to be done. Sometimes it's pulling some little things. Sometimes I got to get the shovel out uh, and I got to dig stuff out or hack stuff out and it takes work. And there's sometimes we have to do that in our lives where maybe we're a new Christian and there are old patterns of sin that we need to put away. And we need to put on Christ. We need to have new patterns of thinking. There's times maybe we found ourselves falling into a pattern of sin and we need to put that away. And so there might be a season where we have to focus on that, but we need to not just focus on that sin. We need to focus on the will of God. We need to focus on Christ. Because the reality is in my garden, once those weeds are gone, I'm working at flourishing what is there. And that should be our emphasis on flourishing what God is doing, what God is working and pursuing his will. Because we want to do it for the will of God for the rest of our time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So our focus needs to be on pursuing Christ, but we should take sin seriously. As serious as a heart attack because Christ died that we would live to righteousness. Christ died so that our sins would be paid for so that we could live righteously. So let us not let that linger. Let's, let's deal with that. But here, I want to give you some hope, friends. If you're in the place where you're like, yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to find victory in this particular area of my life, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I feel like I'm crushed. Well, you, your heart, your life is not like my garden. I've got to get the weeds out before things can grow. But the power of the gospel is amazing. When you start to believe on Christ, you can start to see fruit happening, even if everything hasn't been rooted out, even if you haven't found victory in everything, you can find hope because of what Christ has done. So find that hope and pursue the will of God. Because here's the reality. As we pursue the will of God in our lives, oftentimes the, the, the temptations we've had towards sin, they get starved out because we no longer have time for them. They no longer have a, a grip on our lives because we are looking towards Christ. So let's be intentional to oppose sin in our lives, but even more, let's reflect on what Christ has done and pursue his will. We were praying that this morning in the prayer meeting before church. We were saying, God, we, we had uh, opened up the Lord's pray and prayer, and we were, we were asking God that his will would be done. Let's pursue his will and embrace that call to pursue his will. But as we do, friends, we have to be aware that those around us are not going to understand. Those who don't know Christ aren't going to understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. And so we have to be 
patient with them. Even as we pursue God's will, we have to be patient with them because they actually are probably going to be the ones that come at us or we experience persecution from them because they completely don't get what we're experiencing. Because if they got what we were experiencing, rather than having what happened to the first century Christians of Nero pointing the blame at them, no, he would have fallen on his face before God if he understood what was going on with them, but he didn't understand. And they don't understand. So we want to be patient with them. Look at verse four. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised. So verse three was just kind of a recounting of past sins. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. They don't understand why you don't want to do these things. Why wouldn't you want to do these things? Why what debauchery is kind of talking about context where sin is celebrated and you're encouraged to participate. And some of you experienced that when you came to Christ. You came to Christ and the friends that you used to go out drinking with, the friends you used to go get high with, the friends that you pursued whatever other passions with, for me, it was sports. I gave myself to sports, and those friends didn't, didn't get. Why was it that I didn't want to be around that all the time? And maybe some of those friends turned on you and started to mock you, and you felt that, and you might even still feel that today. But we are increasingly mocked by the culture for not affirming sin. We are, as a church. Is the church broader and, and, and even locally, we are going to be mocked because we're not engaging or affirming sin. Because right now, as no secret to you, what is wrong is being celebrated as being right. And there's a, a, an influence to push back against the truth of the gospel. And our temptation is to push back against that and demand our rights. And I'm not saying there's not a place for gracious and humble uh, response because we, we do live in a nation where we do have rights, but our temptation is just to kind of push back against that without stopping and being aware Look at verse five, that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those that oppose the gospel and whatever level of authority or relationship that you have, though you may feel that pushback and you, you, don't, you don't want that or you feel that uh, persecution that you might feel or you might feel the hurt or the insults that are thrown your way and you want to push back against that or maybe trying to take away some of your rights. The reality is, friends, if they don't hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will enter into eternity and they won't be singing the songs that we've been singing. They're going to enter into eternity, and they're going to face the judge, and they're going to be found lacking, and they're going to spend an eternity apart from Christ. 
We need to be aware of that when opposition comes. We want to share Christ. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So yes, let's go to battle, but the battle is on our knees because Ephesians 6 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need God to work in them. So when the opposition comes, the first place we need to go is we need to pray because we need God to work. That's stirred in us as an elder team. We met uh, a couple of weeks ago as we we're trying to finalize uh, this, this last ministry year because our ministry year goes September uh, to August and, and uh, approve a budget the finance team put together. We had a bunch of stuff to talk about. But in the midst of that meeting, at some point, it just seemed like, no, we need to stop because there were bigger things than we could handle and we needed to pray. And one of the elders was like, no, I'm just really struggling right here. We're talking about all these things. We're not praying and we're just like, yeah, you're right. And so we stopped and we prayed and we didn't get to everything else because we spent the rest of our time in prayer. I don't know how long it was. I didn't time it. Maybe it was a half hour. Maybe it was an hour. But we felt the need for God to work. And this came alive to us. And we felt that need because we have started to gather on Sunday mornings at 8.30 in the gym to pray. We did last week. We did this week. We are for the next couple of weeks or so. And we want to encourage you to come and join us because we need God to work. Only he can change a heart. We can share the gospel, but he's the one that's got to work. And we want to live righteously. We want to put all this, but we need God. So would you join us? So let's, let's embrace the call to battle sin, but to pursue the will of God. Let's be patient with those who don't yet know Christ when opposition comes. The second truth we need to embrace as we make the best use of our time that we find here in the text is we want to embrace being an agent of God's grace. Embrace that you are an agent of God's grace. So look at verse 7. The end of all things is is at hand. Because Jesus is coming back, we need to live differently. Therefore, live self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We need to think clearly. But in in that way, we being self-controlled, sober-minded really means be controlled by the Spirit. Don't be controlled by some substance. Don't be controlled by your emotions. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. And then have a love for the saints. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving. Do not stop loving. It's not a one-time deal. I'm just, well, I loved them once. I, I brought a meal that one time. I was kind to them once. No, it's it's. It's love earnestly. It's kind of more athletic term, like leaning on towards a goal, like an eagerness, an intensity. Love doesn't just happen. It's not like, oh, I have the gift of love. And it's just so easy for me to love people. 
That's a myth. It, it's hard work. And it takes effort and time and patience and endurance because we're called to cover a multitude of sins with our love. What does that mean? Well, here's an illustration of kind of, 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 of what it looks like, the principle of covering. You can flip back in your Bibles if you want to, or I'm just going to read. In Genesis chapter 9, there's a great picture of what covering looks like. So it's the story of Noah. You remember Noah uh, and the ark, you know, big flood that was coming. He builds an ark. Uh, he puts his family in the ark. Uh, they're brought safely through. We talked about that last week. Well, after the ark, they get out. Noah, in verse 20 of chapter 9, he began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. But then Noah did something shameful. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. He got drunk and then he shamed himself. And then one of his sons comes and, uh, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham comes and he's like, hey, uh, dad did something. Okay, you want to know what he did? He, he goes and he, he talks about it. He talks about the shame of something that his father does. He doesn't do anything about it. Rather, he goes and he tells other people about it. But then here's where the covering comes. Then his two brothers that he went and talked to, Shem and Japheth, took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So the brothers, rather than them going, oh, I can't imagine what God, dad did. You know what? This may be our opportunity to push him to the side, and we can push ourselves forward. Let's go tell everybody else in the family what dad did. No. They go, and they're very intentional. They put this garment on their shoulders. They walk back in the tent, and they cover their father's shame. friends, we have that opportunity to do that in the body of Christ. When a brother or sister is struggling with sin, or when a brother or sister has sinned against us, we don't then go take that and go talk to a bunch of other people about it. Oh, do you know what they did? Can you believe she said that about my kid? Can you imagine what she said? I can't believe he said that he would do that. We don't, we don't want that. Now, are there times when someone has sinned against us and we need help because we don't know how to respond? Yeah, there are times when, when we're not sure, I knew that this happened to me a lot as an early Christian, but it still happens. There's times I may call another pastor. How can I deal with it? But the, the tenor of our conversation isn't me just going droning on and on about what this other individual did. No, it's, hey, can you help me? I don't understand. It's a leaning forward. It's a wanting to pursue righteousness. It's a wanting to cover their sin. It's not wanting to celebrate it or put them down in any way. The goal of our conversation needs to have redemption and reconciliation in mind. 
So if you have to have one of those conversations, we'll have it. But ask the question, is this conversation helping me to love my brother or sister more? Or is it causing me to be more self-righteous or to be angrier or more embittered? If love covers, then gossip and slander will not be present because we want to help our brothers and sisters to grow rather than to expose their sin. It's completely countercultural. Why does talk radio exist? Why have news media outlets become sources of entertainment rather than just reporting on the facts? Because as Americans, we love to celebrate the failures of others. And it's not to be that way in the church. We're not to celebrate the failures of others. We're to celebrate that Jesus covered those, that he bore our shame. Rather than expose the shame, we cover that and we want to encourage them. Maybe there's times we have to share a hard truth because someone's not listening and they're caught in sin, but I'm just talking about in general. We want to cover that. We want to walk with one another. Jesus Christ died that our sins would be washed away. So let's be an agent of God's grace in their life and cover that. So we have love for the saints. We also have a love for the saints in, in the way that we have hospitality. We look back at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That doesn't mean you just put together a nice cheese tray during a football game and smile. That's not what that means. Hospitality in the New Testament often meant having others who didn't have resources, who maybe would have come in from out of town that needed a place to stay, and you would give them a place to stay. It cost you something. It was important in the New Testament because there were few inns, and poor Christians could not afford them. In particular, persecuted Christians couldn't find a place to stay because others wouldn't want them to stay there. And so they were cared for. And I know there are individuals in this church that are doing that, that have done that. They've opened up their home. They've given an expression, hey, what's, what's mine is to be used for the glory of God and please come and find refuge in my home. And I could point countless stories of individuals that I see right now and those who are at home that have done that. But it's an expression of a love that we're to have for the saints. So as we are minister God's grace, we also want to use the gifts God has entrusted to us to be agents of grace. Look at verses 9 and 10. So show hospitality to one another without grumbling, but then 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look here. Each has received a gift. Turn to your neighbor, even if they're across the aisle six feet away, tell them, you've received a gift. Look, you just, you just were preaching right there. Each one of you. Each of you has received a gift. 
Don't think that the gifts are just like the ones that you see. Like, Wes has got a gift because he can sing, and that's amazing, and I can't do that. I don't have gifts. Well, maybe you don't have the gift to sing, but you have received a gift, and you're called to use them. You're called to share them. In our discipleship process, we want Christians to abide in Christ. We want them to connect with one another, and we want them to share, not just their resources, not, and, and certainly the gospel, but you need to share the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ. Because in Ephesians, it says, when each joint is working properly, it makes the body grow. So when you're not using your gifts to build up the body, it's hindering the growth of the body the growth in number, the growth in maturity. Your gifts are absolutely needed and you're called to be a steward of those gifts. It says, as good stewards. Oftentimes, stewardship is talked about in terms of money, finances. Well, you're, you're, you're a steward, so you have to manage somebody else's finances. So that comes up in sermons about money, but it should absolutely come up in sermons that reference you know, the gifts God has given you. They've been giving you not to stick on a shelf. Does that mean there won't be times where you won't serve? Maybe you just had a baby and that takes a lot of time. Or maybe there's a health issue or you're home caring for a family member. There are seasons of time where we may not be able to be as involved. But there shouldn't be long stretches of time where we're saying, nope, I am pulling back. Or nope, I, I need a season for myself. Show me where that verse is. Your gifts are needed and you're to be a steward of them to to steward God's grace to others. And you can use them because God has empowered you. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So if you're the individual who's like, I'm not really sure I'm not really sure. I don't know if I'm going to come to equip you because I'm not really sure I can jump on to one of those ministry teams because I don't know. There's other people like that are just really awesome at greeting and we're just going to let them do that. God wants to use you and he gives you the strength to do it. And in fact, when you find his strength to do it, God gets the glory. You don't get the glory because when you're done doing that thing with the strength that God supplies, you're not like, oh, look at me. Look what happened. No, you're like, man, look what God did. I didn't know he could do that. So serve in the strength that God supplies and it will bring glory to God that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. There's an individual in our church who's going to remain nameless because I didn't ask his permission to talk about him. And if I did ask his permission, he wouldn't have given it anyway. He's the kind of guy that's like, you know, I don't really have like big, amazing gifts. But you know, he serves. And he takes that step of faith and he's like, "I'm, I'm willing to serve. Serves in different capacities. And you know what? When I talk to other individuals in our church about him, they only speak thankfulness to God. Like what we talked about last week, I thank God for him because I'm blessed by how he does this, how he does that, because he's taken the step of faith to serve. Maybe serving in capacities that he's like, I don't feel gifted in, but I'm just willing to serve by the strength that God supplies and it brings God glory. So take that step of faith and trust God and use them 
we are to embrace being an agent of God's grace as we anticipate the return of Christ. We can minister. We can see the saints grow. We may be the one that helps to strengthen a saint who then can weather the storms of persecution that may come. Don't take lightly that call to be an agent of God's grace. And the third truth we need to embrace as we make the best use of our time is to embrace suffering. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. I think the first time when I went knocking on someone's door in my neighborhood in Chicago, because I was determined when I first moved there, I was determined I was going to go knock on everyone on my street, knock on their door, and I was going to share the gospel with them. And I knocked on the door of this, this one lady. Uh, she opens the door, and I don't even think I finished the sentence that was coming out of my mouth, and the wham, the door slammed. And I was like, did... There was no, wasn't anybody around to see it. And, and I was like, that just, that just happened. I mean, there's plenty of people who've come to my door. I at least let them get like their little spiel out before I tell them I'm, I'm not interested in the books that you're selling or I'm not interested in the cult that you're pandering or whatever. I give them some time. And I was kind of shocked. It's like, what? I should not have been shocked. We should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. But I, I wish he said something else. I wish he just said, don't be surprised when, when hard things happen to you. No, he says fiery trial. So this is not your average trial. It's going to be hard. And he's wanting his readers, and we as Christians need to be prepared for this. Don't be surprised when it comes. Brothers and sisters, we're going through the book of 1 Peter because I'm burdened that we not be surprised when fiery trials come. Because when they come, they reveal something. Look back at the, at the verse. At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, to test you. Again, I've, when I've talked about testing, oftentimes we hear the test, we hear the word test, and, and we start to get the shakes because we remember when we took tests in high school or in college or different exams that we may currently have to take, and we don't, we don't want to take those exams because they intimidate us. They just make us feel little and small, but what do tests do? Particularly when you are testing a metal, you're seeing what's there. And God has done a work in you. And what do trials do? They reveal the work that God has done. So don't be afraid of the trial when it comes. Don't be afraid because it's going to be hard because it's going to knock off all the stuff that God doesn't want to have there. And it's going to reveal the work that he has done. And it's going to bring much glory to his name. Jesus promised us in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. 
but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when it comes, brothers and sisters, we can rejoice. Verse 13 says, but rejoice insofar as you have shared in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. God's glory is revealed in your suffering and you're blessed because the spirit of God rests on you. This reminds me of a passage in the book of Acts. This is where I've been at in my devotions recently. In Acts chapter five, the apostles, they're sharing the gospel and then then they get put in prison and then uh, uh, an angel lets them out of prison and then they go share the gospel again and they're brought back before the council and the council's interacting with them. And then it says in verse 40, it says, when they called the apostles, they beat them. They beat them, and so they'd already been in prison, and they're preaching again. They beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. And what is the response of the apostles? Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The world thinks that the absence of suffering is glory. But the Bible teaches otherwise. The Bible teaches otherwise. And I believe the Spirit of God is in you as you've trusted in Christ and as you walk through those trials that that may come for you. I don't know what they will look like or that you're walking through right now. They bring glory to God and you can rejoice when you share the gospel with someone and they reject you, when they shut you off or when they start to slander your name across the neighborhood or if our church starts to be the, the focus of unrighteous attack. I don't know. I don't feel that right now. I don't anticipate that in the, the, the next few weeks, but if it does come, we are counted worthy to suffer. I was talking with Billy Nelson this week. Uh, Billy and Jen, they're the ones that head up the ARA, Africans Reaching Africa Ministry that our church supports. And every time I talk to Billy, he shares another story of another situation where one of the church planters that we support has gone into a place and they have suffered for Christ or they were about to be killed. There's one story that he shared with me about an individual uh, church planter who was kind of like, he's gonna get killed. Like the governing authorities have, have ruled that this is going to happen. And then miraculously they decide to let him go. And he ends up going into another country. They're taking his passport and everything. Was he complaining about the challenges that were facing him? No, he's like, I've been blessed because I've been counted worthy. I'm humbled by that because I can easily look around and see the physical blessings that I have received, whether that's health or wealth or status, whatever it may be. That's not the blessing. Those, those are things that God has provided. But we need to be, be rejoiced when we're blessed to be count worthy to suffer for the name and we need to be confident we need to be confident in the face 
of suffering. Yet if anyone suffers in verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So let's be confident. Remember Peter, who was writing this book? He didn't have it all together. Remember, he's the one who Jesus told ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. So he warned him. And then Peter still denied him three times. But what did Christ do? He welcomed him back. He welcomed him back and he called him on a mission. And so Peter is not focusing on his failures or his fears. He's focusing on God's goodness and God's glory. And he's pointing his readers to that reality and saying, be confident. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be overly concerned about your past. Be concerned about your future. You don't have to be ashamed. Let your life point to the reality that Jesus is amazing. And he forgave your sins and your life is defined by his perfect life. Lastly, we want to remember to entrust ourselves. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, the greatest need you have if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus is to entrust yourself to him. To stop living for yourself. Whether you're a teenager, elementary school student, whether you find yourself in middle age or nearing the end of your days, the greatest thing you can do is entrust yourself by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus. But we never stop entrusting ourselves, brothers and sisters. We want to continue to entrust ourselves because Jesus, the perfect one, as we know in verse 23 of chapter 2 of this book, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. We need to entrust ourselves to Christ as we embrace suffering. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna about the middle of the second century. He was arrested for his faith and threatened with death if he did not recant. Eighty and six years have I served him, the saintly bishop replied, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have respect for your age, said the Roman officer. Simply say, away with the atheists and be set free. By the atheists, he meant the Christians who would not acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. The old man pointed to the crowd of Roman pagans surrounding him and cried, away with the atheists. He was burned at the stake and in his martyrdom brought glory to the name of Jesus Christ. As we anticipate Jesus coming back, let's entrust ourselves to the faithful creator. Let's entrust ourselves as our savior did. And let's seek to live today in light of that day when we're gonna see Jesus face to face. Let's pray.
Father, we have experienced a tremendous amount of safety and comfort. And my temptation is to hold on to that comfort. I can be desperate for that comfort. I can desire it. I can long for that comfort. Father, I ask that you would do a work in us, that we wouldn't long for those comforts, but that we would long for your presence. Father, help us to long to be in your presence the faithful creator, to be in the presence of Christ who was the perfect and sinless sacrifice. Father, I ask God that you would help us with that longing as we're increasing our pursuit of prayer, as we prepare to be together in a number of weeks, would we anticipate that time because we're going to be in your presence? Would we anticipate this time every Sunday morning, whether we're at home or whether we're present in this building, that we get to be in your presence? And may we pursue you. May our gaze be fixed on you. Help us, Father, to have a greater picture of you and not be surprised when the fiery trials come. May we be found loving one another and encouraging the saints and looking countercultural, not because our endeavor is to be countercultural, but our endeavor is to live to righteousness because that's the life that Jesus purchased for us. And I'm so thankful. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and respond. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.